3: $25 each.
1: Visit LiveNation.com/slash Week to buy now.
3: That's Livenation.com/slash Week to
4: buy now. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The campaign moment podcast from the Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now wherever you're listening.
0: <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
2: So every so often on this show, we run into things that we think are fun or fun thought experiments. That would be stuff like Flat Earth or Flat Earth Updates, but we also run into things that are very real conspiracies, that are very much cover-ups, and that have incredibly dangerous consequences for thousands or even millions of innocent people. Today's classic episode is about just such an example, Flint, Michigan. Like a few years back, uh, led us into an investigation on something that even that continues even today. It's lead, it's
1: something as simple as lead. Lead in the water, lead poisoning all over the place. And as you said, Ben, six years have passed since we recorded this episode. And there are numerous updates, all kinds of different infrastructure changes that have been happening in the city of Flint, Michigan. There's a lot more to the story. this is what was happening almost exactly six years ago. From UFOs to psychic powers and government
2: conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know.
1: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. I'm Ben,
2: you are you, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, This podcast has been a long time coming. Uh, Why don't we uh, open up the show
3: with uh, First Things First. Shout out, Corner. Okay, it's Shout Out Corner. Today we'd like to start out with a shout out to Tom Sorteden and everyone else listening in Norway.
1: Wow. Yes, and, uh, we have a phrase here that I watched a YouTube video on, on how to say it correctly. Um, here we go. Hi, Vorden Gorda. Hopefully that's at least somewhere. At close. least
3: one of the three of us pronounced it correctly. Yeah. And with our three pronunciation skills combined, maybe it made, uh, you know, yeah. some kind of sense.
1: I, I think it's supposed to be said at least three times faster than that, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how to do right. it. Right, we so. sounded
2: like a very <laughs> drunken person trying <laughs> yes. to speak Norwegian. Well, yeah. Shout out to you, Tom.
1: Who's next? We've got Nate Klump. And, Nate, you're probably working on a bike right now while you're listening to this, and we can only hope that this is the easiest fix that you're going to have all day and you get a little time to uh, go do something for yourself.
3: How or, considerate. You know, I mean, some people, they like the long processes so they can listen to more podcasts. Sure. So, oh, I
1: yeah, mean, you're right. I hope that the current bike that you're working on is the hardest job you've ever done so you can finish this podcast. Oh, and
3: they end right. They end together just perfect. Because that is very satisfying. It's like yeah. when you pull up to your house and that NPR story ends. Oh, yeah. So you don't have to have that, you know, drive in the menu. car. Or
2: yeah. it's like when you walk to the microwave and then it stops right as you get right as you approach it. Oh, it's beautiful. Am I the only person who pretends that I'm diffusing a bomb at the last second when I stop a microwave? Beep.
3: I always like to open the door with only a single second remaining. Mm-hmm. That's just like an OCD thing. Just like an aha to use <laughs> the <laughs> sure. microwave. Ah.
2: And our final shout-out for today's shout-out corner goes to Marie Furminger, I uh, hope we're saying that correctly, and her mom, Sabrina. Uh, we had a question about this, right, Matt? Yeah, Marie, we... We're wondering, are you really five years old
1: or is
2: there something you don't want us or your mom to know?
1: Yes. Shout out to you, Marie. And we hope you enjoy the food that your mom has prepared for you. We we assume that it is most nutritious and delicious. And with
2: this, we end
1: our shout out corner. (laughs)
2: And that brings us to today's episode Uh, of we're traveling from the shout out corner across the globe, taking you with us to to the
3: upper peninsula Mm -hmm. or the lower peninsula.
2: No, to Michigan, to Michigan,
1: just by the Great Lakes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Which is weird because Michigan, if you look at it as a child, I can see how it'd be very confusing to anyone to say, why is that one state?
3: Yeah, most of what I know about Michigan uh, has come from two places. One, the wonderful Sufjan Stevens record, Michigan, Mm -hmm. which is where he grew up. And if you want to hear a really excellent, epic, sweeping, orchestral piece of uh, music, that's a good place to start. And every song has kind of like personifies a different part of Michigan. That's where I learned about the Upper Peninsula and all that. Um, And then the second place I learned about it, which is very pertinent to our topic today, was the movie Roger and Me, which was... um, Michael Moore's first documentary where he uh, who you know he grew up in Michigan Flint as well um, and he pursues the uh, then-CEO of the General Motors Company, Roger Smith, to bring him, take him to task for um, shutting down all of the um, manufacturing facilities in Flint, which was the heart of that city's economy. And it just, you know, plummeted the city and its residents into poverty. And uh, a lot of the issues that we're talking about today likely began back then in terms of infrastructure and um, things not being, you know, looked after.
1: Sure, Mm -hmm. as the money just wasn't coming in anymore to the, to the counties and to the city.
2: Which is an unfortunate story in a country where, uh, the manufacturing base was, uh, being offshored at such a precipitous rate for a time. uh, Matt, you have family in Michigan.
1: Uh, Yeah, I have family. A couple of them live right outside of Detroit. I think they're on the northern side of Detroit, but I'm not exactly positive. And then I've got a whole nother section that live just north of Flint. So mm-hmm. basically north and south of Flint. Okay. So roughly 20 miles on one side and 40 or so miles on the other side. So they, I spoke to them this week actually right before we were recording this just to kind of get some idea of what they're seeing, if anything, there. Mm-hmm. And uh, both said that they haven't seen really any effects. They didn't even learn about it until Rachel Maddow talked about it on her show. So how
2: far, how far outside of Flint are they?
1: Uh, 20 miles north and okay. then I think I don't know exactly, but closer to Detroit on the south. On the so it's a, it's a different water
2: system. Then, yeah, a completely right.
1: different water system. And they don't know a lot of people personally. One thing that my uh, cousin said is that Flint is such uh, a place where you don't really go to Flint if you're not from Flint. Mm-hmm. It's, which is a kind of a sad thing. Um, but when you live in that community, you just live in that community. And if you don't, you don't.
2: Right, not a big tourist
1: base, you're saying? Sure, it, yeah, for anything.
2: Well, one thing that Flint, Michigan has, unfortunately, in common with many other cities across the U.S., and this will be a U.S.-centric podcast, one thing that all these cities have in common is uh, a terrifyingly bad infrastructure situation for quite a few people in the uh, post-World War II era the United States was seen as the shining beacon of success despite, of course, the enormous internal problems the country had with discrimination, prejudice on gender and ethnicity and creed and religion. The thing was there was, it was a booming economy where someone could have what today would be seen as maybe a minimum wage job, but still afford a house. Sure. Maybe one spouse stays at home, afford to raise kids and one other thing that was amazing was this infrastructure the fact that unlike so many other countries you could hop into the car that you bought which probably it was still an ownership society back then and you could just drive from co- one coast to the other and then back right no border controls unless you you know you go to Mexico or Canada and there's this huge nation with these great roads and that is no longer the case in recent years, this thing has, this infrastructure thing, has declined dramatically. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, people who are paid just to look at this stuff.
1: It's their job, yeah.
2: One in nine of the bridges in the U.S. was rated structurally deficient uh, as of 2013. And that gave the bridges a score of a C+.
1: Plus. Which is actually one of the better scores, that the United States infrastructure got.
2: Yeah, that's the worst part. Relative to other parts of the U.S. infrastructure, that's relatively good. They have a, we have a quote from them that the, uh, ASC said at the
3: time. Quote, our infrastructure systems are failing to keep pace with the current and expanding needs and investment in infrastructure is faltering.
2: And there are signs of hope. The ASC's report card that they issued gave a slightly improved grade to infrastructure overall compared to 2009. But that's here's the problem. It's not just a road or a bridge. You know, it, it's something that politically is difficult for pe- to get people to vote for. No one wants to pay a tax for something like that mm-hmm. uh, until, you know, the hurricane hits and the levees
3: break. Yeah. Or the bridge collapses. Mm-hmm. And then everyone's looking to point fingers and place blame.
2: Right. Why didn't you do this? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you why didn't you uh, make us? Vote the way you wanted us to vote.
3: I mean, and it makes sense because it is unpopular when it comes to getting the job done. No one wants a lane of, of, you know, busy intersection closed off. Right. No one wants to be late to work because there's, you know, work being done on the, the, you know, the road they drive on. Mm-hmm. No one wants to, you know, have their street dug up and pipes, you know, ripped mm-hmm. out. Exactly. And, you know, and we're moving on obviously to, you know, the, the big subject of today, which is water systems and You know, you gotta think about these systems that were in place, you know, just long, long ago and we've had to kind of just keep repairing and patching and fixing these things little by little because can you imagine what it would take to just put a, let's just put a whole new water system into our, our, you know, metropolitan city.
2: Right, especially when we consider how funding arrives those things. We won't get too, won't get too bogged down in those details but just for just for some perspective, uh, the the infrastructure report card that we're mentioning projects that water uh, the the funding we need to safely restructure the U.S. water system is going to total out to one hundred and twenty six billion. We have forty two billion of that, and these are two thousand ten dollars, so appreciate the inflation there. And that means that the Uncle Sam is eighty four. Billion dollars short on an unpopular thing. At the dawn of the 21st century, most of our drinking, much of our drinking water infrastructure is nearing the end of its life. These things, because, you know, these things are constantly in an eroding environment. Water is moving all the time. A lot of this stuff is really old. Back before we understood the safety implications. So we
3: have some good and bad news. So there's an estimated 240,000 water main breaks per year in the U.S. alone. Uh, assuming that every single pipe would need to be replaced, the cost over the coming decades could reach more than a trillion dollars. Uh, and that's according to the American Water Works Association. Which is crazy. But there is good yeah. news.
1: Yeah. Well, the good news is that in a lot of places in the U.S., the drinking water that you're going to get from a fountain that is meant for human consumption is... Pretty high. Yeah, it's potable. It's I mean, drinkable. yeah, o- overall, it's pretty good stuff. Even though the pipes and the mains that are running underneath the city and throughout it, are are pretty old. Frequently, more than a hundred years old. And when they're that old, they need replacement, especially depending on what they're made from. Like there are some uh, older wooden pipes that still exist. There are some pipes that may or may not contain a little bit of lead in them. Mm-hmm. Uh There are huge issues with that. And this is because the water is treated, right? I mean,
2: it right. The yeah. water, the water treatment system is one of the biggest parts. Well, so, and the good
1: yeah. thing about this is that getting sick from drinking the water is is a pretty rare thing in this country
2: right that's what we're gonna that's uh that's a great way to set up this point because for quite a few people in the u.s traveling to another country is is difficult and it's expensive you know there, there are two oceans on either side and as a result sometimes in the international community people who live in this country are accused of not having an entirely realistic understanding Of how, how stuff works, although I hate to say it that way in other, in other parts of the world. And with that being said, you know, one, one of the things that I think escapes a lot of people is just how profoundly important safe water is to any civilization. You know, there are places around the world where you're just not going to drink the water and it's not. It's not because you are not acclimated to bacteria or whatever's in there. It's because no one yes. can drink the water. And this, this sort of sanitation is, is a huge deal. And we are conscious of that folks, but we are also conscious of the, uh, increasingly deteriorating system. In here in the U.S. So we have examples for you. In October 2012, Hurricane Sandy knocked large coastal sewage plants offline and caused nearly 42 million cubic meters. That's 11 billion gallons of sewage oh, to go into the water supply.
1: Ah, uh, what do you do from, from, you know, can you imagine being the people tasked to fix that? All right, guys, let's pump this out of here. Well, it's water. And now it's just got sewage in it. Huh. In January 2014, a storage tank in West Virginia that held a chemical used in coal production leaked into the Elk River, and it spilled an estimated 40 cubic meters, which is 10,000 gallons, just upstream of the water intake for Charleston, the uh, the state capital there. Now, here's the problem. Almost 300,000 people were without tap water for at least four days when that happened. Now, you have to think, I've been without – I think you guys may have gone through this here in Atlanta somewhere – We've been without tap water for a few days because of some small thing or a main leak or something like that. It's crazy how much of a wrench it throws into your world when you don't have running potable water.
3: Yeah, actually, in my hometown uh, in Augusta, Georgia, and uh, North Augusta, which is the on the border of Georgia and South Carolina, but it's like right over the bridge. They're really close to one another. Um, They have been having all these boil advisories lately, and they haven't quite determined what the problem is, and it, it keeps coming up. Up. It's very strange, and I mean, even just think about that. Just like adding that step, having to boil your water, and then what do you, you got to cool it again. I guess you ice it, or what? do You just wait and leave it out and put it in the fridge. I don't know what. I mean, it just seems like a whole, you know, yeah, to do. You go out and you buy privatized water from someplace in
1: a in a jug or in oh Dallas. sure absolutely, and, and it's not cheap. So I don't know. It's it's crazy.
2: So one of the big points that we're obviously making here, folks, is that while The situation in Flint, Michigan may have been one of the first to really garner national attention. It's not really unique. It's not especially exceptional in terms of, uh, substandard infrastructure. These kind of, these kind of breaks are happening in, in the modern age. Uh, this is not necessarily an isolated incident and we're going to dive into, maybe that's a poor choice of words, The situation in Flint, Michigan,
3: after a word from our sponsor.
0: So visit Snagajob.com or text SNAG to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to
4: hire. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters—
1: Terminix it.
2: Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today.
1: That's T E R M I N I X.com to book online today.
2: And we're back. We're back in Michigan. We're back in Flint, Michigan, specifically where things started to go wrong in recent months. You have no doubt heard about the crisis with lead contamination in the city of Flint, Michigan. Uh, we have a little bit of a timeline that we can walk you through here. In 2011, Michigan takes over the Flint Budget. They take over the the town's budget because there were years of rampant poverty, spurred in part by the loss of auto manufacturing. Like uh, you mentioned earlier, Noel, uh, Flint is in a financial state of emergency. Michigan takes over. And when they take over, uh, the governor at the time, uh, Rick Snyder, appoints an emergency financial manager. And this manager was, according to a congressman named Dan Kildee, this manager was hired to do one thing. I'll actually read the quote you had one job man you had mm-hmm. one job simply do one thing and one thing only and that's cut the budget at any cost Yikes so one option for a budget cutting thing is to stop paying Detroit for that sweet Lake Huron water and start using water from the Flint River
1: because that's safe right mm mm-hmm.
2: and so they do a study this is all in two thousand eleven mm-hmm. the study finds that for Flint River water to be considered drinkable, it would need to be treated with an anti-corrosion agent. And water treatment would cost the state about $100 a day. Adding this treatment, by the way, in retrospect, would have present, prevented 90% of the town's later problems. So these complaints are mounting over the years. Uh, let's let's fast forward to a little bit more recently in 2014, April Flint officials to combat these rumors about just how terrible water is in Flint. They publicly drink the river water in front of the media.
1: Uh, Yeah, the the mayor, right? Right, yes. Okay, so at this point, the mayor's drink the water on television. Everyone's, you know, maybe not everyone, but it looks like it's going to be okay. We're going to switch over to the Flint River. We're running it through a treatment plant. It's going to be okay. So in April 2014, that happens. Now this is meant to be just a temporary solution, right? This isn't their the idea isn't to stay on the Flint River
3: water forever. I mean, are they trying uh, how how are they going to raise the money to pay Detroit? Yeah, this is just a budget cutting move. I well, see.
1: It's yeah, it's a budget cutting move so eventually they're going to get the water from Huron from Lake Huron, which they're I right see. next to. I mean, I not right next to, mm-hmm. but it's not far away.
2: So they're thinking maybe 2 years mm-hmm. they can make a state run supply line. Problem is that uh in comparison to Lake Huron's water, uh Virginia Tech researchers find that Flint River, the Flint River water supply is 19
3: times more corrosive. So then in May of 2014 is when the discolored, bad tasting, bad smelling water starts actually making its way into Flint residents' homes via their, their faucets. This stuff is brown. Yeah. Yeah. This stuff is objectively brown.
2: This stuff looks like soup and, uh, not, not, you know not a good soup, not a nice bisque or something. And it's
1: not one of those things where maybe there's a little junk uh in the system where you turn on your faucet if you haven't turned it on in a long time and it kind of goes out and then you get the nice
3: water. Yeah, you can get a little bit of rust or something like that, and then it uh, clears out. No, it's say. not mm-hmm. like that. No, but not to mention the fact that the city officials continue telling the residents it's that fine, okay. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Pay hey, no attention to the soup in the in the water
1: glass. Well and and then there are there are large swaths of the population that have to continue using this water because they cannot afford to have another water source, or at least in some way.
2: Well, there's not another water source; they'd have to buy bottled. That's water. what I'm saying. Okay. They don't
3: have they don't have the means to go out and buy bottled water. Mm-hmm. So we're we're talking like not even. A boil advisory Ew. being put into place at this stage. No, the water, the water is fine. That is the party line. <laughs>
2: in January 12th of 2015, Detroit steps in to offer help. Uh, notably their water and sewage department says, Flint, people of Flint, financial mm-hmm. tycoon or uh, tyrant of Flint, we will reconnect the water supply and waive the connection fee, which was $4 million, at least per the governor's office of Detroit. But what happens next?
1: Remember that emergency manager? Jerry Ambrose. Yeah. He said, nah, we're good, guys. And, and he was just talking about the additional cost that would be involved, uh, if, if they wanted to take that water from Detroit. And I think they were looking at around a million dollars a month or something like that. Um, and they're also saying the city itself doesn't have a connection directly to that Detroit system. Mm-hmm. Uh, since that, that was, I guess, sold by Flint as part of some, some deal that they were making with another county.
2: Right, exactly. Uh, to Genesee County, I believe it's called. So there they are. And at this point, I want to say, I don't want to demonize Ambrose too much because it's got to be a tough thing. There's no money. They're asking you to spin straw into gold. They're asking you to make soup from rocks. And I'm, I'm you gonna... should have listened to our alchemy episode. He should have, yeah, he should have listened to the alchemy episode. He would have learned something. That's when the EPA starts uh talking about lead. Uh the EPA and Michigan's Department of Environmental Quality say, "Hey, there's a uh, there's a lot of lead in here. There's an unhealthy amount of lead. A dangerous amount of lead." And that's in February of uh, a
3: little more than a year ago. So then in July of 2015, there is an internal memo uh, in the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, that gets leaked. And this memo shows the high levels of lead uh, in a particular case, one uh, woman's home, high enough that her son actually got lead poisoning. And this is according to MichiganRadio.org. Um, and the site also said that the memo was leaked by the ACLU, who actually... Reached out, contacted the person who wrote the memo. At this point, of course, the party
2: line is still the water's fine. The water's fine, folks. The water's fine. What do you, do you want it to be gluten free? What do you expect?
1: <laughs> then uh, I think it was the regional EPA manager who came forward and said, look, you guys, it's too, it's too early to make any conclusions, especially based on this one memo. So we're just going to continue continuing on.
2: Right. Exactly. So then let's go to August of 2015. Virginia Tech researchers launched their own investigation and they find uh, they find these elevated levels of lead as well. And they go public.
1: Then in September of that same year, the Department of Environmental Quality looked at the research Virginia was doing and disputed the claims about corrosion and uh, lead poisoning or leaching, at least specifically.
3: Then there's actually a pediatrician, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, Atisha, is seeing these elevated levels of lead in children from certain parts of Flint, seeing them double, triple. Uh, and here's a quote from a very helpful CNN.com timeline that we are pulling from uh, a lot of these details. Uh, quote, when my research team and I saw that it was getting into children and when we knew the consequences, that's when I think we began not to sleep.
0: So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
2: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not
4: 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists.
1: Terminix it.
2: Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today.
1: That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today.
2: So in October of 2015, the governor at the time announces a plan to uh, reconnect Flint to Detroit's water. Flint's water switches back to Lake Huron. However, by then, the corrosion, that's, that's the Absolutely, issue. Yeah. So the pipes are old and the pipes are lead pipes. That was not as much of a problem when there was a less corrosive water source. Given that the Flint River was so much more corrosive than Lake Huron, uh, what they find is that there's still
3: going to be elevated levels of lead. So in other words, because of the higher corrosiveness of the water in the uh, more polluted water source, which was the Flint River, it's causing the lead in the pipes to actually leach into the water itself to become detached. Yeah, it
1: could be the cleanest water ever that flows through it now, and it it doesn't matter. You're going to have some issues.
3: Yeah, exactly. But, you know, if you're using this... Uh, more polluted water that has different, you know, materials in it that could, that could accelerate this process. That's when things become pretty dire. At this point, you know, a lot of the, uh, there's really no turning back. I mean, it's very, very difficult to reverse what damage has already been done. And these Virginia Tech researchers, uh, actually continue to find elevated lead in Flint water even though they're at lower levels, but they are still much higher than they should be.
2: The next month, a federal lawsuit is filed by the residents of Flint, Michigan. They filed the lawsuit against the governor, the state, uh, the city, and several other defendants. They say that the Department of Environmental Quality was not, in fact, treating Flint water with an anti-corrosive agent. That's a violation of federal law. This means that as Nolan, I pointed out earlier, the water was eroding the iron water mains, turning it Brown about half of the lines to Flint homes are made of lead. And this, this is exactly what happened. That's our, that's our sequence of events. That's what they allege in the lawsuit. And, uh, you know, this doesn't happen all the time in lawsuits, of course, but it turns out that they were telling the truth. Uh, the chief of the Department of Environmental Quality quits in December. So these things happen in just month after month.
1: Yeah, yeah. Then as we get into 2016, the governor reached out for the Federal Emergency Management Agency's help, FEMA, our good old friends at FEMA, and um, he ended up activating the Michigan National Guard to actually help get water, bottled water, to people
3: who are in need. And to me, the most mind-boggling element of all of this is that there were multiple points along this process where they could have started to, to mitigate some of these problems. But instead, all you see is, nope, it's all good. We didn't do anything wrong. Everything's fine. You know, it's all about de- just defending that initial decision, that cost-cutting decision to change the water source because in politics, you know, somebody wants to get a pat on the back for saving some money and doing the right thing. Politically speaking, not necessarily, you know, for the people of Flint and, you know, I mean, I'm sure their hearts were in the right place, but when you realize you've made a mistake of this magnitude, you got to come clean, right? Yeah. So Slate writes,
2: that's our question for today. What is the stuff they don't want you to know? What is the cover up? What is the corruption? Is there any? And the answer is unambiguously, yes. Yes. Uh, Michigan knew, uh, last year that Flint's water might be poisoned, but decided we'll just keep this on the hush. We'll just keep this on the down low. You like how I'm going into my quiet storm voice? Yeah. So jumping around a little bit, but in, uh, in January of 2016, when, uh, as, as you had said, Matt, when Governor Snyder came clean about the dangerous levels of lead in Flint and called it a state of emergency, it appears that a study released in September of 2015 Concluded that the change put Flint children at, and I'll quote here, a significantly increased risk of lead poisoning. Before we go further, let's talk about why lead poisoning is a big deal. So lead poisoning, uh, which also has a couple of interesting names, painter's colic and plumism, like plumber, but plumism. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's something that happens when you have increased amounts of lead in your body. Lead interferes with a lot of the processes that our bodies depend on, and it can damage your heart, bones, intestines, kidneys, your reproductive, your nervous system. It's all kinds of bad news. Here's one of the big things. It's very, uh, very dangerous to expose children to this. Children are vulnerable because their nervous systems are still developing. So studies show that it can cause significant learning disorders that are permanent, as well as behavioral disorders. In severe cases, it can cause seizures, and in the worst case, it can cause death. So for this kind of exposure, what we're hearing is permanent damage done due to a cover-up, essentially, It seems to show also, according to the ACLU, that the Department of Environmental Quality rigged test results in the water in the summer of 2015 after reports about problems had already been published. Uh, They cite the work of the Virginia Tech folks we're mentioning, who are headed by a guy named Mark Edwards, an engineering professor who studied Flint closely. So... According to uh, Dr. Edwards, the city officials broke federal laws by failing to collect water samples from homes at the highest risk, and they also failed to conduct follow-up tests as required on homes that had high levels. And the, the DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality officials who are supervising this, according to Dr. Edwards, made a move to reject two samples collected by the city, samples that, as it just maybe this is a coincidence would have pushed the test results above a level the city was required to alert residents. So it seems that, uh, it seems that management already knew for lack of a better word and cooperated with one another to cover this up or to delay the release of the news. What this all means is that, um, Oh and there's not an emergency manager now that ended in April of 2015 but what this all means is that this could potentially be a criminal case and I wanted to ask you guys who
3: yeah should someone be
2: prosecuted
3: who I mean I would say it would be the guy that that resigned The the DEQ and the EPA regional admin? Yeah, but it's so tricky because, I mean, you have to prove at what stage they knew, Mm -hmm. you know, that they were not acting in good faith, Mm -hmm. that they were literally acting outside of the scope of their job and obfuscating, you know, facts. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that stuff's really hard to prove, isn't it?
2: You know, it's strange because we do function in a court of public opinion so often nowadays, but for it to be... Rule of law, there, there has to be a provable trail, a provable paper trail, audio conversations, I guess Skype calls. If anyone is still foolish enough to conduct an important conversation on Skype, sorry Skype, but you know the deal.
1: I would, yeah, because most of the people who made incorrect decisions here probably had no idea that what they were doing was going to lead to a domino effect to where in the end children are getting lead poisoning a pretty heavy lead poisoning right they probably thought they were making small small level decisions to save money if not cutting corners a bit right at least that's what in my opinion that's what i'm seeing
3: mm. and it's it's a really difficult situation because we know that you know flint being one of the most um financially you know distraught areas in Michigan which as a state has some real serious problems. I mean Detroit, you know, declared bankruptcy and they're only just now really starting to rebuild and pull themselves out of that after all these worries. They were going to have to sell off the contents of their art museum and mm-hmm. you know things like that just to stay afloat. And as we know, Flint has a real history of dealing with these issues ever since Roger and me, which was in 1989. Um, that is when they lost a lot of their manufacturing jobs. And I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm, I have a feeling that some of that could have come back, uh-huh. but you know, you know, it's never the same. Mm-hmm. And we know Flint has been having these kinds of problems for a long time and for, you know, to, Be a member of the government in a city like this where you're, you know, hamstrung with lack of funds, lack of, you know, really power, having to defer to, you know, Detroit and say, help us. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very difficult situation to find yourself in. I do not envy any of those people. And, you know, sometimes you got to make hard decisions and sometimes you mess up. But if they were covering their own, you know. Tuckuses. Tuckuses, yeah. Yeah.
1: Trying to protect their own jobs. Trying to protect their own
3: jobs. You know, which compared to some of the folks that this really affected, pretty cushy, you know?
1: I'm glad
2: you bring up that point because this takes us beyond Flint. This is the, this is the larger stuff they don't want you to know for today's episodes. There's an amazing book written called Lead Wars by authors David Rosner and a guy named Gerald Markowitz. And in Lead Wars, they note that yes, Flint's problems are being addressed. It's in the national media now. However, whether or not Flint has highlighted the problems with lead and pipes, there's a bigger thing. Lead is a neurotoxin and it can be found on walls, in the soil, in the air, and even a small exposure can again impair brain development. Uh, It can cause hyperactivity, dyslexia, ADD, IQ loss. So, When we talk about how far back we knew lead was bad for you, Rosner argues that it goes back to the 1910s and the 1920s when doctors were documenting children who had lead on their fingers as a dust and put their hands in their mouth and began going into seizures. You don't need a lot of this stuff. But the average can of paint from the 1990s to 1950 contained, like, 50% lead carbonate. Which yeah. is, so, and it's all, it's slap dashed all over, uh, the, the walls of older places. There were advertising things that said lead is much cleaner than wallpaper. Look how slick it is. Use lead. Uh, there was even a scandal in DC about lead and drinking and it's tough for us to predict how far this will go. We do know that it over, like that it, <clears throat> it tends to affect people in disadvantaged communities, minorities, more than it affects other
3: parts of the population. I mean, and there are safeguards in place. Like I know, for example, when I bought my home um, several years ago, they have to disclose you know, that because of the age of the home that that's possible that lead paint was used and then you have to do things to ensure that there's no lead paint remaining. I mean, you know, that's up to you, I guess, but they let you know that, hey, there's it's possible there's lead paint in here. And it reminds me of, you know, the high school that I went to. There was a whole period where they realized, oh, well, there's a lot of asbestos still in this mm-hmm, building. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge deal where they had to, like, bring in these crews and pull this stuff out. But like you said, I mean, a lot of these um, these folks are renting, you know, maybe Maybe their landlords haven't taken the steps to do some of sure. these things, or maybe they got around
2: it somehow. What What Rosner Markowitz said that I, I recommend highly this interview they did with uh, NPR and the book itself. They found an active conspiracy by the lead industry. And I know it might sound ridiculous for me to say big lead, but that's exactly what it was. Uh, That was similar to uh, some of the stuff the tobacco industry did when uh, the carcinogenic effects of cigarettes and uh, dip and all this other stuff came to light. The lead industry went around the country saying, telling doctors, You haven't completely proved that lead is the cause of children going into convulsions and kids dying. So uh, you need to do some more sophisticated studies. You need x-rays. You need like a variety of other techniques or whatever. But the problem is this led to a vastly underestimated number of lead poisoning cases because if they were not recognized... It looked like maybe they had a high fever or another kind of thing. But what the lead industry did to take this conflation of symptoms, uh, and use it to their advantage was to say, uh, lead poisoning was overstated and the doctors were misdiagnosing children. And now that leads us to a situation we have today where an infrastructure is in danger and where, where if something unexpected or bad happens, the results can
3: quickly get out of control so listeners out there what do you think I mean what where do you, who, where do you think that the, um, the responsibility falls in situations like these um, are there any folks out there that are in Flint right now I know Matt you say you have family there we'd love to hear from anyone that's experienced this stuff firsthand because um, it is like you said ultimately a problem that's bigger than Flint but Flint really puts a spotlight on what can happen when these aged, aging infrastructures go you know, le- are, are left unrepaired and are continued to deteriorate.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or are you in Cleveland and someone in your family is dealing with lead poisoning from government housing on the walls from the lead paint? So let us- and that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is one 833 If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are
2: conspiracy
1: at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Attention, true crime enthusiast, Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up
3: at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief.